Hello, and welcome to High Almond and Haver, the stage and screen podcast. Coming to you from the Bainbridge Ballet Studio in beautiful Bainbridge Island, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we'll bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, and interview talented local actors and directors. Today, we welcome to the show local artist, dancer, choreographer, Bainbridge performing arts instructor, and admin of the Kitsap Theater Artist Facebook page, Scott Breitbarth. Scott Breitbarth is a local filmmaker, editor, videographer, stage director, choreographer, and Baybridge Island's arts educator. He grew up as a Kitsap theater kid and dance student, laying the foundation for Kitsap County Musical Theater's student choreographers before pursuing and graduating with a film and TV degree from the infamous USC School of Cinematic Arts in 2015. Scott always likes to stay busy, as some of his friends say, maybe a little too busy. A few of his projects in the last year include Ovation's production of Bye Bye Birdie, director, co-choreographer, and projections, Bainbridge Ballet's 2019 production of The Nutcracker, director, co-choreographer, and projections, again, <laughs> and is editor of the Edge Improv's Letters from Isolation series. He just wrapped the final cut of the Seattle Men's Chorus Holiday Special, and he hopes to one day make a big film and actually have the time to watch it before it's released. Scott, <laughs> good luck with that, and thanks for joining yeah, us. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Yeah. So, um, you grew up a Kitsap theater kid, as it says <laughs> in your bio. So, what age did you get bitten by the theater bug? Yeah, I would say I started watching a lot of musical theater movies. Um, prob- well, I guess they're called musicals then. <laughs> <laughs> I started watching a lot of musicals probably when I was around three or four. My mom made me watch a lot of Fred and Ginger movies um, when my brother was in the hospital at a young age. And... I ended up also watching my cousin Barbie do the Nutcracker back in Illinois growing up. Um, so I moved to Washington and then Paulsboro probably when I was around seven or eight. And I said, Mom, I wanted to dance. So we shopped around at a couple different studios and eventually ended up at Bainbridge Dance Center. Um, after a few years, um, there were a couple collaborations between Susan Thompson and Stephen Fogel that I got to do as a young kid, um, primarily the Magic Flutes. I was a rat still am <laughs> um and i think that was doing that show at bainbridge performing arts is when i said you know what take the next step you know there's some opportunities some doors open here so yeah i think that's probably a good start so you studied at the university of southern california mm-hmm. majoring in film and television production and then with a minor in dance yes. so what led you to usc specifically and tell us about that experience and why it's the notorious usc yes so i i Basically, it kind of falls along with my theater bug. I eventually ended up, after BPA, I went to a conceptual and musical theater, and I started choreographing a couple numbers here and there for the shows at the beginning of high school. And then eventually, when I was 16, I choreographed West Side Story for them. And having zero confidence in my own creativity, I just said, you know what? I want to do the Jerome Robbins choreography. So I just watched the movie over and over again, and I began to realize that it wasn't just the dance moves that enhanced everything. It actually was the way everything was shot. Um, angles, camera movements, editing. He literally blew the budget on the film in production and post-production that they kicked him off. And you know what? It went back and won several Oscars, so I guess he was doing something right. Um, lots of different effects were originated in that film. And I, I got so caught up in the history of it that I said, you know what? Maybe looking more into film is something worth checking out. So I went ahead and looked at the top film schools because I'm an overachiever sometimes. That was one of those times. <laughs> um, and I said, okay, USC, NYU, Chapman. I don't want to go to the East Coast. Let's check out Southern California. And 
luckily for me, they really look at a lot before they really figure out who is the best student. They really want to make sure that they have people coming from a variety of backgrounds. And I mean, on my end, it really was the creative resume. And I think primarily my dance and choreography background that made them take a second look at me. Um, so yeah, I asked them probably around my junior year, what do you want me to do? I don't really have any film experience. So I'm probably not going to have any time for it. Like, should I take really hard classes? Should I do more theater? And they said, you know what? Take it the hardest classes you can and do what you always love to do. And we'll see where you are from there. And that's pretty much what I did. Took maybe 10 AP classes and <laughs> luckily did I you, got in. <laughs> did you find that that interact, did their willingness to work with you yes. was something that was attractive as, as, as a school? Obviously it's a, it was on your radar to begin with, but when you write to them and, and they actually come back and say, hey, you want to be here, but you're here, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, absolutely, and I think that's a big thing that USC and a lot of the best universities really try to do because they want to make sure that the people who are there really feel like they belong there and they have a good reputation and idea of what the school is going in because then they can go in and take advantage of what they have to offer, all the classes, all the clubs, and really feel like you are, you can actually feel like you are becoming who you are thanks to the branding. And I mean, it really was a wonderful experience. Yeah, and then after graduation, you're representing <laughs> them. Yeah, so exactly. they want to make sure that you're the kind of person that can go go through the coursework and, and their program and represent them well Precisely. after graduation. Mm -hmm. And happy to do that. <laughs> and there's been a few big names that have come out of USC. We were talking off, uh, we were prepping for this segment, and mm -hmm. uh, you said that sometimes the fact that USC is on the resume, people will take a second look at, at the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, it's not a guarantor. Exactly. Of, of any doors opening, but it doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. um, but there's been some pretty big name folks that have come out of USC. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, the top, top of my head, we have George Lucas. <laughs> you know what he did. Um, Robert Zemeckis, Back to the Future, Forrest Gump. Um, recently, The Witches, if you like that movie. I did. Um, and then Ron Howard. Um, just a lot of really famous TV and film legends have come from that school. And it's probably given it the reputation that it had probably the most famous person who didn't graduate from that school is Steven Spielberg, who um, tried again, I think it was around three times while still working at Universal as an, an intern, an assistant editor. And eventually he got the last laugh and now, you know, he has half the school named after him on one side of the building. So, you know what? <laughs> got some honorary degrees. Yes. Even when you don't get in, you, people still want to be a part of USC and I wholly encourage it. Were there any folks uh, of uh, notoriety that you interacted with or any one come to speak while you were there? Yeah, I got to meet quite a few people. Um, Brian Cranston came in for a Breaking Bad uh, webinar and, well, I guess class, and I really enjoyed t listening to him. I got to ask him a question. It was nice. My favorite professor there is Drew Casper. Um, he just retired last year. Amazing amazing critical studies professor and that's probably where I spent most of my time taking a lot of his classes um, every two years he has a Hitchcock class and he actually has Hitchcock's granddaughter come in or his daughter and they get to ask questions get questions asked from the audience um, he also does a director's study so Steven Spielberg came in Martin Scorsese came in while I was there and I got to ask them questions it was really really cool wow. um, the most important person that I met was Victoria Alonso so I took the uh, there's a critical studies class that's called just business of film and they actually go step by step through the process of making a film while also interviewing people who work on a certain movie and the movie that I did that I got to study was Guardians of the Galaxy 
So they had the person who worked on development, created, they had the actual animators come in to, from two different studios. They had Kevin Feige come in, get James Gunn. But Victoria Alonso was the executive producer. She's been the exec producer on every Marvel movie since Iron Man. And funnily enough, um, I got to tell her where I was from and she actually said, you know what? I used to be a waitress as the Azteca in Palsbo when I was in school. Are you kidding? <laughs> wow, small world, big time. No kidding, and I made a connection there. Um, and actually, about a week later, she asked me if I wanted to be a sound assistant on uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, that's where I got this. I did not end up doing the movie. Um, I probably waited a couple of days, and I said, you know what? If there's anything I've learned from doing school is that, you know what, you kind of have to make your own roads. Um, your connections are going to be the ones that you make when people really want to work with you. And I said, you know what, I kind of want to be a trailblazer out where there really is no opportunity because I've just, as someone who's really creative and um, has really had to go from nothing and build things into something, I said, you know what, what better place to do it than, you know, where everybody already knows your name. Right. <laughs> so I came back and been here ever since. Awesome. So dance being probably your you know primary area of focus question on that so when i was watching hamilton the other night yeah. as, as as one does and from a musical perspective i know that the use of rap and jazz and classical kind of musical theater styles help tell the story help build the you know context and build out the characters and things like that can you do the same with dance with different dance styles to help direct the story or provide context or some other way of, of moving it along that uh, you couldn't without maybe the dance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the great things about Hamilton is that it's a satire. Um, it's critiquing a founding father's story from rags to riches while also juxtaposing you know, the story of a person of color going from rags to riches. Um, and that's why the hip hop and the style works so well in that context because you're really watching two different shows at the same time. And I think a lot of people like it when they can do that. Um, off the top of my head, a really good old example would probably be something like The Producers. Um, Mel Brooks was not making fun of the Holocaust or the Nazis and the awful things they did. He was simply making fun of the, the theatricality. It was the best way to bring down Hitler was to say, you literally had to act like this for people to believe you. And actually making the connections between what Hitler was doing and American theatricality, I think, was really interesting for a lot of people to watch. And hey, you know, he got the screen, a screenplay Oscar for it. Um, on my end, I can think of two things um, Bye Bye Birdie, another comedic show. Um, downstairs in the basement where we have the Shriners Club, Rosie does a tango dance, and she's doing it with men who do not want to be touched, let alone see a woman in the room with them. And, and it eventually turns into a full out orgy. Um, if you're an adult, you get it. If you're a kid, you're like, oh, okay, you know. Guys are making funny voices. <laughs> um, and actually, recently with this production, um, we're actually doing a modern Nutcracker this year. So our march actually is hip-hop. So mm -hmm. it's the famous song goes, ba -ba -da -da -ba 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 -ba. we got a little hip-hop remix going on, and it really establishes everybody, hey, we're in here in the modern era. This is what people would probably do if they were doing a march in a modern Nutcracker party situation. And it's all happening on Zoom. So, yeah, not only the choreography, but the technology. That's just the great thing about the arts is that really any sort of style is a vehicle. And you just have to know when to use it so that people are like, okay, you know, it's like food. This is sour, this is sweet, it's also spicy. It's just the right combination is always mm -hmm. going to work. Mm -hmm. So you specialize in tap dance. Yes. And uh, instruct in multiple locations here in Bainbridge mm -hmm. Island. Now, certain dance styles 
tap, perfect example, seem to be you know not a lost art, but something that fewer and fewer people are known for yeah. in, in, in modern life. <laughs> now, obviously, styles come and go. Uh, like you just mentioned, hip hop is the way you're doing your modern production of of uh, the Nutcracker. Yeah. But how do you introduce these styles to especially younger folks mm-hmm. um, and get them excited about it when they maybe haven't seen it um, yeah. or examples of it in, in pop culture and in, in modern film? Well, it's always the question of like, you know, why is this here? It's the great question that you ask any anybody when you're learning any subject, right? You know, um, why do we have fingernails? Why do why does the United States, as big as it is today, I mean, history, science, it all goes back. And I think the important thing to do when you're teaching a kid about the arts is say, hey, did you ever wonder why, you know, we have, why ballet has been lasting for 400 years and, you know, why a lot of people say everything comes from ballet. And I think teaching musical theater and teaching tap, it really is a lesson in not only dance history, but also American history. I mean, tap really comes from two different things. It really comes from the melting pot of New York where you had the low African dance coming in with uh, Irish dancing, a lot of hard heel, a lot of clicking, a lot of shuffling, and all that can kind of combined together to this very loose style. Um, so when I get kids involved, I say, you know, you have to know the history of how dance has evolved over the ages and also be able to watch the movies where they actually happen. So I literally just teach them, usually step for step, the actual choreography from famous movies that they might have seen or might have even seen before they, with that they might have seen as the movie that made them think, hey, I want to try musical theater or dance. Um, so, I mean, a few numbers I can think of are Singing in the Rain. I usually teach them all I do is dream of you. I've occasionally taught the actual Singing in the Rain tap choreography. I need to brush up on that a little bit, maybe shuffle on that a little bit. I also teach um, the opening to chorus line. I mean, what better show to say, hey, these are the literal twists and turns that you're going to experience auditioning for a dance show. The first day they do it, they just kind of sit down and go, what? And I say, yeah, so if you want to do this, you might want to take a few more dance classes. Coincidence, I teach dance. (laughs) Um, I know a guy. Yeah, very local, very close by. Yeah, and then I think the most important thing that you really can do as a teacher, but especially in the arts, is just make sure that you always have a positive outgoing attitude because doing this is really hard. Um, People, I think, especially when you're young, you expect that you're going to be going all the way to the top, and if you don't have the right amount of interaction with the right kind of people, you're going to be thinking that it's going to be a straight road. It really isn't. Some people take years, even decades to get to New York or one of the top stages. And I think that really when you, you're telling a student this and you're getting them used to the idea of like, you know, this is how much of a workload it is actually being a professional. These are what professionals that have family have on you. This is what professionals with money have on you. You have to say, you know what, from where you're starting right here in little old Kitsap County, you got a, a little bit of work to do. And the earlier you start it and the more you get used to the pain and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the constant frustration with yourself, the more you're going to wake up at the beginning of the next day and be like, you know what, that was yesterday. This is today. I'm going to keep going because tomorrow belongs to me. So how does something like Dancing with the Stars um What's your feeling on that? Is it one of those that, from the dance community, that getting dance out there, regardless of the medium, is a good thing? Or the format of something like Dancing in the Stars, where they're trying to inject it into pop culture, um, is it a good thing, a bad thing? What's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, it all just depends on the quality of the product, I think. And, I mean, that's what Dancing with the Stars is. Um, It's not going to be about 
who's the best dancer, who has the best show. It's always going to be about who can cut a deal. And, I mean, if you're going to be trying to get people to get more interested in dance, then, you know, what better way of saying that, you know, hey, we have all these amazing dancers. Here are some people that you might know, and they actually might be good at something. It's the good at something new. Um, it's basically kind of like the, the opposite of mean that person that, you know, seems quite ordinary, but they have an amazing skill. It's like, here's people who are already somebodies. And they're gonna have some fun, and they get to we get to laugh at them along the way, and see who comes out. Um, I think there's a lot of there's there's kind of like an R of that around any sort of movie or show where you don't expect people to be able to dance, and sometimes they prove you prove you wrong. Um, I mean, I think most shows that people think about when they think about recent musicals will probably be The Artist or La La Land or Greatest Showman. Um, I think as long as people do a great job with the choreo and the work is there um then you know what it's something that is going to be respected you know in the next 10 20 years those those are the musicals and shows that we are emulating that we are commemorating by exploring these different kinds of dances if you if you're going to do something like that in any regard whether it's a musical or a stage production just make sure that you have people who either know what they're doing or that you have enough time and money to make sure that they do know <laughs> well, the nice thing is, in a show like that, in Dance with the Stars, I know and they, they they show you what they work on yeah. week uh, over week, so you a see how hard it is, and b you you see that it's um, you get an appreciation for the skill exactly that's involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine what Hell's Kitchen would be like if you know they had Hugh Jackman on there, <laughs> Gordon Ramsay yelling in his face, "You call yourself Australian? Your glam is frickin'." <laughs> Well, and it's, it's one day a show like that. It also is is impressive and surprising. The people that you think will will automatically be awesome. Yeah. Say uh, maybe movie stars who have the the opportunity to do a show with dancing or or an athlete. You think exactly. Oh, they, and they triple over themselves. And uh, along those same lines, people who started out uh, famous actors Christopher Walken. Um, yeah. who started out as song and dance man. I picked up a book recently uh, from my favorite used bookstore, the Kingston Bookery, just actually down the road here. And the owner says, did you know that James Cagney, the book I'm holding, did you know James Cagney started yes. out as a song and dance yeah, man? And I'm, thinking, I'm thinking White Heat, you know. I'm exactly, G-Men. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and Walken too. Yeah. They go on to play these roles and you go, seriously? Right. And, and then you see Walken in something like, you know, Fat Boy Slim's music mm-hmm. video and you go... Do they superimpose his head on somebody else's body? <laughs> Are there any other stars that came from that background that you know that would maybe surprise people to to know that they they have that that classical training? Um, definitely, uh, the young man who plays Spider-Man right now. What's his name Tom again? Tom Holland. Tom Holland. He was one of the original Billy Elliots. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So I mean, if you ever want to do a dance movie with somebody, I mean, that that's your guy. <laughs> I just cannot wait for someone to actually tap into that. I mean, that's probably why it was so easy for him to play. Peter Parker, because with that mask on, he can still be physical. He can still mm-hmm. act. He can still move. Um, yeah, I, I think that that would definitely be a, the top person at the top of my head. Um, maybe we'll actually have Sean Johnson come back from Dancing with the Stars and do a movie. Who knows? <laughs> well, um, first off, shout outs to two of my favorite films earlier: uh, La La Land and The Artist. The Artist, I thought, was uh, just a cinematic treat um, mm-hmm. when we saw that. Uh, segwaying into your work as as a producer in both film and stage. I think there's some obvious differences, the camera between the two. (laughs) But what what do you find as, you know, contrasting the two, producing for stage and and film? Some of the maybe challenges that might be unique to one or the other or some of the commonalities? 
absolutely i so i kind of call this like the big crunch um film you have to really cram all your time into one space um you can spend weeks years decades figuring out what your product is and then you know just know that it has to work at this moment at this right time ask anybody who tried to shoot something during the eclipse a few years ago mm-hmm. i think stage you do get some you do you do get more chances basically however you rehearse it you're going to be doing that from start to finish you're not going to have to stop you're just going to be like okay lights come up i do my scene i do my dance i come right back off um a movie like this the kids today definitely learn you know what four to eight minutes of choreography turns into four to five hours of shooting, especially if you're trying to get the right angles down and make sure that everyone knows their stuff and they get to do it right the first time or the second time, not the fifth or sixth time when they're doing closing night. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's probably the biggest thing I can think of. Yeah, I guess between when you're shooting film inside, maybe more similar to stage in that, uh, but when you're filming outside, you're looking at light from the angle oh, yeah. of the sun, mm-hmm. how it hits off buildings, you know, things like that, that maybe you only get a window of a few minutes that you need to get a, the shot that you have envisioned. Whereas inside, maybe you're creating those things in, in a stage. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the biggest obstacle I'm still facing with uh, my feature film that I have yet to finish, Prey. Um, which I made with the amazing Cordell and a couple other friends. Um, Stephen Silver is an amazing composer. Uh, I shot during the summer, and I quickly realized that because I live in Washington, the sun goes away probably around September or October. So I literally had to wait a year to shoot pickups from a point of view and then keep going. Um, you know, maybe one day I'll be able to 3D generate an entire Washington rainforest, but in the meantime, yeah, you do kind of have to depend on the sun. And here, you get to play God. You get to make anything from anywhere as long as you just have the right amount of lights and people who are willing to put up with you for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> so taking a couple steps back, during high school, you were influential um, in launching the Kids Out Children's Musical Theater, and you're still very active with youth. Mm-hmm. Um, you're as an instructor at BPA here at Bainbridge Ballet, also at Ovation. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about some of the challenges working with kids and their expectations and but what, what advice do you have for someone who's maybe considering taking lessons for this first time or maybe a, a, a child who's maybe worked down at WWCA in a theater production and wants to transition into a musical uh, where there's dancing and, and more elements involved or maybe even studying it and pursuing yeah. a career eventually? you have some tips? Yeah, I'd say the number one thing is just make sure that you are doing it for the right reasons. I think people often do especially theater or film because they think that by being in front of a camera and being awesome that they will be able to fill some hole that they have inside Um, i think that you have to do something because you feel like you're actually fulfilling yourself and you're actually fulfilling other people i found that the biggest thing that i learned coming back from school was that i felt a heck of a lot more doing things behind the scenes and supporting other people and making sure that they felt like they were putting something on, which in turn made the audience feel like they were enjoying something and getting to forget about the world for a second that you pretty much end up realizing that, yeah, you know what? Making people happy or making people feel something should be really the only goal of actually being an actor or a director. You're trying to be a communicator. You're not trying to be a megaphone for yourself. <laughs> a storyteller. <laughs> exactly. I think that's what attracts us all to mm-hmm. film and theater and audiobooks. I mean, yes. that, that type of entertainment is, you know, what is Podcasts. the obsession? Podcast. Exactly. It's it's the storytelling. And mm-hmm. you spoke to it uh, in, in that there are so many different roles 
um yeah. uh, many of our guests we've we've spoken with have started out as actors and realized you know what i really do love directing more yeah um that's something greg and i have both talked about is we really like being on stage but how much fun would it be to be pulling the strings behind the scenes and 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 helping others attain their own goals absolutely and the thing is that when you do work behind the scenes you are not limiting yourself to your talent there are always going to be incredibly talented people that's probably the second thing i would say that you know what if you think that that's just your talent that's going to get you in like they don't call it show, they call it show biz. You have to have the business side of things. You have to know how to treat people. You have to know how to treat yourself. You have to know how a production works from start to finish. And ultimately you have to make sure that you have the endurance for it. Because once you finish one job, you could very well be onto the next one. Ask any stuntman. They are yet to get an Oscar category. <laughs> and they probably are responsible for more Hollywood films coming out than anybody from the 20s up to today. Like really underrated people you have to have a heart and a passion for what you do and make sure that you are willing to give yourself to it. Yeah. Awesome. So man of many hats, uh, one of the yes. hats that you've recently uh, put on besides the nice Avengers hat um, <laughs> is the admin for the Kitsap Theater Artist Facebook page. Uh, yes. Tell us a little bit how, how that came about. Yeah, that was, that was a volunteer effort. Um, when I came back from school, I immediately started doing social media promotions for local theater. I started volunteering and actually eventually turned into a whole market that I made for myself. Uh, started BPA, did a couple ads for Fifth Ave, and that turned into a job at Seattle Courses, but I still continue to do things over here in Kitsap for BCT, BPA, Ovation, Jewelbox. Um, and yeah, when Michelle passed away uh, earlier this year, it was really, really tough not to go forward and say, you know what, I want to help. I want to make sure that you know what she wanted to do and what things that she did do for the community continues. So fortunately, people like, you know what, this probably is the most logical person. And I said, well, thank you. And I just kept going. <laughs> and and, in, and with COVID and none of us being able to really get together with people yeah. with the same interests, you know, this whole theater community is is a really big family. I and mean, once, once you get into it, that's the first thing you notice. It's everybody's got everybody's back. Um, it's and true. it's just every it's it's a community and not having that you know that interaction with people uh, having the facebook page and some of the other things that and that's what we're trying to do here in yep. in, a, in a way is exactly. is is bring people together while we can't be together physically mhm yeah what are some of the biggest challenges you faced as a, i mean as an artist and and as a person what are you what are you looking most forward to when things get going again I'm looking forward to actually being able to interact with human beings on a more regular basis. Uh, the hardest thing that hit me when COVID started was just having to teach uh, young kids who already stare at a screen every day, trying to learn how to do dance um, over the computer for three to four months. Um, we had I had an issue with um, learning that Zoom has an echo cancellation feature, which when you're teaching tap, and your taps disappear after like you know two or three hits it's like oh okay so i could have done that better maybe that one kid would have come back um, <laughs> um yeah it's it's not a glitch it's a feature exactly the, the feature of isolation even provokes it coming your way thank you zoom um just Feeling, I think if anything, techno this has proven that you know technology is not the equivalent of reality. The real human experience is actually being in person with somebody else. We've been around for how many hundreds of thousands of years? How long has Zoom been a lot around? How long has computers been around? You know, this is not natural. We have to be together at whatever, well, not literally whatever means necessary, but um, 
just always constantly working to make sure that we can get back to really being in touch with our with, with each other. I mean, that's what theater is all about. It's actually being able to witness and see real human emotions. It's the big advantage that theater's always had over film. Mm-hmm. Film is always trying to convince you that it's larger than life. Theater does not need to. You are already there. You are your suspense of disbelief is suspended. You can get to see a little bit more humanity, and I'm hoping that when we finally start doing shows again, even though we'll definitely have some virtual shows here and there because everyone now has a microphone in their home, um, that we really get back to what makes theater so great, and it's actually being able to see ourselves and somebody else 10 feet away. Yeah, exactly. I think we're glad that technology exists Yes. because it's better than nothing. It's true. Mm, but it's certainly not <laughs> something that takes the place of that human interaction. Exactly. That's it's, it's, diet, so, it's diet humanity. <laughs> I'm stealing that one. Good. <laughs> well, thank you, Scott. We've of learned course. a lot. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Man of many hats and and all and and doing a really good job uh, wearing all of them. When we come back, you're going to stick around. Uh, we're going to talk about one of the projects that you're working on currently here at the ballet studio, and we're going to mix a drink and talk about some of the things uh, that COVID has brought about, some of virtual theater, and see where that maybe is taking us in the future. So. Um, all that, we can back on Highland and Haver. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And welcome back to Heilman and Haver. I'm Haver. This is Heilman, and we've got our guest here, Scott Breitbarth. Thanks again for joining us, Scott. Thank you, Matt. And now it's time for a segment that we like to call In the Mix, where our resident mixologist, Mr. Heilman, will be preparing a special cocktail today in honor of a holiday classic of the stage, a show coming soon in a very special format to uh, Bainbridge Ballet, choreographed by our guest again, Scott, the Nutcracker. Now, I assume the cocktail contains neither sugar plums, toy soldiers, giant mice, etc. So, Greg, what is in this delicious Christmas concoction we have. Well, you're right, Matt. None of the above. So (laughs) I'm glad. We're we're looking at uh, almond milk, uh, hazelnut liqueur, Frangelico. Um, Some of you may know that brand. Um, Cake vodka, Mm. which was a fun find that we had to look at a few places. Yeah, we did uh, our homework on that one. Topped with whipped cream and some ground nutmeg. So without further ado, the Nutcracker. Cheers. Cheers. That tastes like Christmas. We're going to do the rest of the show with with milk mustaches. <laughs> Greg, I exactly. am shaking vigorously. This is so good. Mm. Indeed. So for those of us, or for those of our uh, followers out there, listen. Woo, woo, that, that nutmeg got me. <laughs> Usually does. So for, the, for those who are tuning in on YouTube and, and viewing this, you'll see that we're here on a set, on a stage. We've got our green green draperies uh, behind us. Yeah, the floor is kind of hidden back there. Yeah, so Scott, tell us a little bit about this. So you're bringing the Nutcracker in a very special format uh, coming from Bamers Ballet. You guys have been doing a lot of work. So what's all this about? Like any other small business, we pretty much came with this approach that, you know what, if we want to stick around and survive the pandemic, we have to still have a show. So we fully came in with the intention of like, you know what, We'll do something like the New York City Ballet movie starring Macaulay Culkin from 1993. We'll do the stage version, and we'll just shoot it very well. And then we started looking into, you know, what theaters would be available and how much it would cost. And I said, well, here's the thing. You know, what if something happens? Like, you know, people decide that they don't want to go on stage and be around 20 people with their masks off for a day. And, you know, we didn't know where we're going to be in November. So I said, well, hey, you know, being the video graduate and the green screen graduate um you know why do we take that money that we would usually put into renting an actual facility and you know 
just make our own. Have a lot more control over it. It's a heck of a lot more work on me, but you know what? I think I'm up for the challenge, and I'm sure there's a great way we could orchestrate this. And that turned from doing just like a, a back drape, a, a, a wall, um, just with the with each of our different settings, like the forest and the Candyland, to why don't we just do what Robert Rodriguez does? You know, we could do our own Sin City, our own Shark Boy and Lava Girl, and you know what? Have some really fun, cheesy effects, and you know, really make it feel like an actual community production. It has a lot of heart and a lot of character. It's not about the most amazing Nutcracker Four Realms Disney-style show in the world. It's about you know a bunch of people putting on the best thing that they can do while waiting for all this to relax. And yeah, I. Just began editing and full steam ahead the next six weeks, guys. I am, I'm gonna need a lot more of this, so I'm gonna take this with me. Well, awesome. we'll have the recipe up on our uh, our Facebook page and post it on the podcast. So I'm super excited. Check it out. Mm-hmm. So with uh, with COVID, obviously it's it's facilitated a lot of uh, a lot of changes and adaptations. So mm-hmm. to do something in person, which really is a rarity. You know, the, these days with everything going on, everything's virtual. Yes. Doing something in person, mm-hmm. how are you doing it so that everybody stays safe? You know, making sure you've got the COVID precautions in place, that sort of thing. Um, the biggest thing that we had to do was number one, make sure we could understand what people were feeling very safe doing. So our party scene, which we shot two weeks ago, we had enough people in that scene where that that pretty much said, okay, you know, we don't really feel comfortable not wearing masks. Um, so for the whole party scene, we actually made it just part of the story that they actually made these fun Christmas-style masks and wore them Excellent. while everyone else was on on call on the Zoom on the Zoom scene. Um, the only people who weren't wearing masks during that were Clara and Fritz, and those were only very two specific scenes anyway. That kind of just in the context of reality, they probably wouldn't be wearing masks and. Those kids have amazing parents, and they are very much on top of their game. I literally have to email our Fritz because he will not take emails from his mom. (laughs) Like, they are on top of their health and everything, and if there's any other moment where they said we were not comfortable doing this and I don't feel comfortable doing this, we would have just stopped. And that's kind of been the attitude with everybody. Um, I think the only time we ever take masks off is usually when we do our actual performance, and the kids aren't really doing any other activities anyway, so their exposure has been very low. Most kids are doing school school from home anyway. And again, it's just playing the honor system, making sure we talk with parents that they're comfortable. Um, we have a specific set of guidelines that we've been following and that and release forms that we put out so people understand the responsibility of that. Overall, the biggest thing I've done is just made sure that if there's any sort of close contact that people are either completely wearing masks or they are constantly working with each other on top of things. Our Sugar Plum and our Nutcracker are not going to be wearing masks. They're actually teachers and guest artists, but some other dances, we will be. Snow, uh, which has probably 10 to 12 young ladies in it, you know, on this little stage, they'll be wearing lace masks. I think we'll be wearing masks for flowers. We are still discussing that, how we're going to approach that physically. And then I think probably the last thing we do is just we always, if we have any opportunity to split things up and keep our dances small, we do that. If we have an even number of people, half of them perform, the other half wait, the other half perform, half of them wait. Just lots lots of details I could go into on this. Our parents are the life and blood of what we do. Um, our kids, it's it's literally what we do, it, who we do it for. And you know what? They need to be doing something and in as safe an environment as possible 
we'll be responsible for that and we'll just make sure that have fun along the way awesome. yeah. that's great yeah. So, so where can people see it? Is there any information posted on? Yeah, do? so we're we're figuring out the details of that right now. We're hoping for a premiere the week of December fifteenth. Um, it's going to be a Vimeo link. We're probably probably going to create some sort of PayPal system where you prepay for a ticket and that gets your email into the mail list for when the link goes live. And we're hoping that maybe we have performances that not only happen on Pacific time but also East and Central time. For the first time, if you cannot make see you cannot see your granddaughter's production of the Nutcracker because you live in Connecticut. This year you can, and the best part is you will have some pretty wacky effects along the way. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that brings us to kind of the topic we, we wanted to discuss. When Matt and I were, were sitting around thinking about, you know, we really miss being on the stage, being doing kind of the theater thing. Mm-hmm. How can we um, do something to work with maybe some of our former castmates and, and just do something to, to keep this, this going while everybody's kind of quarantined? and. And we've done a couple of read-throughs. We did a, a Zoom read-through of Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm-hmm. We did War of the Worlds. Good. We've noticed some other people are out there doing very similar things. Um, as part of this episode, uh, we're interviewing Amy Knickerbocker, who's, who's they're doing a virtual theater company, uh, which they're doing Pygmalion in December. Nice. So it's, 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 uh, we're going to have more details on that when mm-hmm. we speak with her. You're doing this fun and creative uh, version of Nutcracker. So as we as we hopefully in the next year ish, you get back to a sense of normalcy, get back to live theater and and, and the things that we really uh, miss about not being with people. Are there any things, and I can think of a few maybe that are you think might stick around? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Zoom read-throughs, uh, even if they're not, because obviously there's licensing issues with with broadcasting things. So you, you know, so from a private perspective. Uh, Zoom read-throughs or virtual theater present presentations, things like that. Mm-hmm. I can see, you know, it opens up the um, theater to people who don't necessarily have the time to commit to a stage production. Yes. Or people that travel. If you're on business travel mm-hmm. and you can't commit to a stage production because you're on the road, well, all of a sudden you can participate in something from Paducah. Yes. You know, while everybody else is out here, Baybridge or whichever. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps age. Yes. Uh, we have a lot of patrons of the arts uh, that are elderly. We have people who are who want to still act into their golden years and may not feel safe or comfortable doing that in person. Absolutely. So some of these virtual <laughs> options, I, I think for myself, having explored the virtual options and knowing that, again, they're, they're not quite like the real thing, but but knowing that that's an option exactly. will just add that kind of to your... You know, to your stable of things that you can you can go to. Right, and I mean, it all depends on, you know, who is going to be still limited after this. I mean, it's like we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, there's the big advantage that theater has over film and any sort of video is the fact that it is in person. And some, you know, that's an experience that you can't really quite take away. What's happening right in front of you is something that's connecting with you right here rather than something that is trying to convince you that it's actually real happening right in front of you through all the effects and means. Um, but yeah, I think if people really still want to do theater and they don't have the ability, or I mean, heck, if you want to do something that uh, brings people together across several different areas, maybe even like a play that hasn't come out yet that is meant specifically for Zoom, we'll, we'll call it the vagina monologues of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> like it could definitely happen and you could actually have several different crossovers that way. So by all means, if people have a demand for it and it becomes a new thing, you know what, do it. 
All right. Well, thanks, Scott. Um, you're going to stick around in a little bit. We've got some uh, lightning round questions for you. Ooh, boy. Um, when we get come back on Heilman and Haver, we're going to uh, present a clip of an interview I had with Amy Knickerbocker talking about uh, her virtual theater company and their presentation of Pygmalion coming up next month. Fantastic. Looking all, forward to it. All that when we come back on Heilman and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Earlier this week, we had the opportunity to speak with Amy Neckerbacher, president of the board of the Virtual Theater 2020 company, specifically around their production of Pygmalion, which is debuting in December of this year, and about some other things that are going on with her and during the COVID pandemic. Here's a bit of a clip of the interview. The rest of the interview, the whole interview, is up on our YouTube page, which will be linked in the show notes. Uh, welcome, Amy. I appreciate the time. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So first off, I guess uh, in a bit of an introduction, I guess you are part of the Knickerbocker family that if anyone has acted at all in Kitsap County, you have run into a Knickerbocker or acted with a Knickerbocker. Probably. Or... <laughs> so if if you wouldn't mind just a little background on how your family got started in into acting in the regional theater here and specifically some of the stuff that you've done? Yeah. Um, my family has been doing theater for almost as long as I can remember. Um, we did theater at church um, when I was itty bitty. And um, then we started um, doing it as a whole family when I was probably about 12. We did Anne of Green Gables at a little Christian uh, theater company called Evergreen Performers, which I believe is still around in the harbor. And then uh, when I was in high school, we started uh, acting with Paradise Theater in Gig Harbor uh, during the Music Man. And our whole family was in that. My mom and dad and all my brothers and sisters, of which there are six, uh, and I'm the oldest of the total of seven. Wow, <laughs> so, that's, a, that's a full house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it just became kind of like our family sport. You know, we would do auditions together. We'd you know, sing together at home, we'd practice together, run our lines together. It just, you know, took over our lives for most of my life, pretty <laughs> much. And now I have a sister who has her degree in acting and a brother who might want to become a drama teacher. And I'm an acting teacher. So, <laughs> and running this virtual theater 2020. So your entire life is centered around this one thing. And then all of a sudden that thing is gone completely. And um, it's devastating. Um, it's emotionally and just creatively devastating. So yeah, and I was uh, music directing uh, Matilda at Seastock at the time, and we were just about to open. Oh, wow. Uh, and we had been working super hard since December. Uh, we had auditions in December and um, the kids were amazing. And it was going to be such a good show. Palmer Schutzow was directing it and she's an awesome director. I love working with her. Oh, it was so, so, so disappointing because <laughs> some bet, of those kids yeah. might be too old by the time we get back Oof. to, you know, we'd have to recast and, oh, it's just so disappointing. Well, I imagine, so, so Matt and I had sat around and, and talked about, you know, what can we do to keep, you know, going with theater while we're not actually in theater. And we thought, well, you know, maybe some Zoom read-throughs. We did Glengarry Glen Ross. We did uh, War of the Worlds. And like we oh, said, fun. we've seen other people do similar things. Uh, the Virtual Theater 2020 is intriguing because it seems like a step 
beyond that. And I was uh, hoping you could tell us a little bit about how that started. How you know, Is it something you just thought of kind of in the same way Matt and I were discussing these read-throughs and you thought, how can we best, you know, come up with something that's as close to theater without being theater? I mean, can you talk us through that? Yeah, totally. Um, so it was just this little idea I had. I was like, I wonder if any of my friends would want to you know, try to put on a show and see how it would work virtually. And um, so I just put some feelers out on Facebook and a couple of my friends um, auditioned and we put together um, The Importance of Being Earnest was our first show. Um, and we just did two weeks of rehearsal and, you know, nothing was really memorized. It was like partially memorized and partially like a reader's theater kind of. Um, but we had costumes and we had minimal sets in the background and and we did it live on Zoom, uh, posted on our, our Facebook page, and it worked great. It, it worked way better than I thought it would. <laughs> you know, trying to figure out how to like work inside this little box. You know, it's very unique, but surprisingly, it worked. And I'm just I, I'm a very innovative person, so I really love challenges and creativity and sol problem solving. Coming up with new ideas, new ways to do things. And so this was like the perfect challenge for me just going, well, there's this big hole in everyone's lives right now. And I have so many friends who are just aching to get back on the stage or to create or something. And so I just wanted to help fill that gap a little bit. And I was great, shocked great. with the result. <laughs> so in, in the, you mentioned the audition process is, is there because you're, you're not, you're, it's mostly face things, right? Because I imagine you're the whole body's not on this, you know, because when you're acting on stage, it's, it's a whole experience. It's, it's from head to toe, you know, totally. you're at, and, and with zoom um, and virtual things like that, it's mostly just kind of this top third, if that of the yeah, body. Mostly. So yeah. is, is there anything when you're doing the audition process uh, that you're looking for specific to this kind of forum? Mostly what I'm looking for uh, in an actor is just enthusiasm and, um, I love to see when an actor loves what they do. So if I see that they're putting everything into an audition, um, whether it's perfect or not, you know, um, I look for potential more than perfection in an audition. Um, we have an awesome casting director, Cassie Post, who runs our auditions. Um, and she's done that professionally in New York city. She's wonderful. And she, she runs them so efficiently and um, professionally, and I could not do it without her. <laughs> um, and I've actually only um, directed Ernest so far. But, um, we had uh, our Shakespeare showcase last month was performed, and that was four different directors um, directing different bits of Shakespeare. And so um, I was minimally involved with the um, audition process, but I was producing for them. So yeah, so I haven't cast anybody since Ernest, but I'm uh, directing in January. So you mentioned your first, the first show was, uh, well, you had the Shakespeare um, thing, but then importance of being earnest. How many people were cast in that? We had eight people in the cast for that. Um, it's a nine person show, but one person was double cast in two different roles. It was a perfect show that lent itself to Zoom really well uh, because it was a smaller cast and it's public domain. So we weren't worried about any uh, copyright issues or anything. And so we actually adapted it and modernized it um, and brought it into American lingo and everything um, just to kind of, so it wasn't quite so weird having it on Zoom, you know, and it worked pretty well. 
So Pygmalion is the ne- is your next show, right? Yes. And Directed I saw. Directed by I Jonathan O'Gwen. Awesome. Yeah, Nate. I was in Rumors with Nate um, at WWCA, but yeah, um, the O'Gwen family is pretty phenomenal too. Yeah. So I think auditions happen for that in October, right? Yes. Okay, and that is scheduled to. Oh, well, actually, before we get to that, so we have the auditions and then the rehearsal process. How does that work? Is it uh, you know? I guess you're rehearsing over over Zoom, right? And it's yep. Are there any challenges or any um, hurdles or things that maybe you didn't expect that you guys have run into with rehearsals? So many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of my um, actors mentioned the other day that it's just things you d- wouldn't think of before you tried to do it, like trying to pass an object, like you're in the same room. And so one of the things that we came up with for Ernest was passing towards the camera, but passing under the camera and then taking away from under the camera. And it actually worked pretty well, but just, you know, in the moment, looking at the script and going, how on earth are we going to do that? Uh, (laughs) You know, and any physical affection or anything, you know, that's impossible. So coming up with different alternatives for how to show affection without physical touch and just a lot of things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily think of right away. When you look at the script and you're going into rehearsal, you're like, okay, how are we going to block this baby? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lots of, lots of challenges and not the least of which is not being able to directly interact with your fellow actors. That's another thing. One of the actors brought up to me after um, Shakespeare showcase is like, some of them have never actually met in real life. We had people in New York and one person from England Um, in the cast for that show and so you know we had people across the world who never would have worked together otherwise getting to work together but never getting to actually work together you know (laughs) yeah and I yeah I want to talk about that in a little bit as far as what may if this is the kind of format that may stick around after you know uh, you know after COVID but the uh, we always hear acting is reacting right and is it I imagine it's one of those things that I guess gets better with uh, with the rehearsals when you react because if you're reacting to somebody there's a bit more of a delay if you're not with that person you know in front of that person oh, it's definitely. less of a natural discussion discussion that's one thing we had to work on a lot in earnest was timing because the timing gets way off because of the lag in the reaction time so you have to kind of anticipate a little bit it yeah it's definitely strategizing about how to act in an environment where you aren't with the person in earnest, there's a lot of really quick back and forth where you have to just be like, you know, one person says their line and then the next person comes right back with a a really witty repartee. And that kind of speedy rhythm kind of gets lost over Zoom. So you have to really figure out ways to keep the pace up. So that was a big challenge that we had in earnest. Yeah, and we've so we've been talking about and going uh, back to uh, what you were talking about with your cast being kind of distributed all around the world. Is this are there plans to keep this going after we get back to a sense of normalcy? And do you see this as an as an option for for people that may be either traveling or um, just can't make a commitment to be on site for for a show or something like that? So what are your plans and what what do you think we could see come that that it's been developed as part of this whole quarantine COVID thing that might translate into something 
once we get out of this. Yeah. I mean, I would love to keep it going. I think it's a really awesome uh, way to do theater now that we've discovered it, <laughs> you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Right. And I really think that it's, it's a cool new art form really. And, um, the innovation that you can do with the mixed media doing theater on screen is, is really interesting. So I personally would love to keep doing it. And I think it's really a cool way to bring in people that you wouldn't be able to work with because they're far away. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that it's something I would like to keep doing. We, we don't have plans for that laid out as of yet, but we have discussed it and um, we'll probably discuss that more in the future. <laughs> um, so in January, we have our um, uh, one act festival. So three different one acts directed by three different directors. So some variety there. Um, and then in um, March, we have um, auditions for um, Tartuffe by Moliere. And that's gonna be directed by Cassie Post. And uh, in May, we have auditions for an original musical that my brother and I are writing uh, based on Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> That's my next so, big So challenge. we are going to try the musical thing. That's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, trying to figure out how we're going to make that happen is uh, my next big challenge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Pygmalion. So, so it's not a live thing, right? Is it you record it and then kind of publish it out or is it, or is it live? How is that? No. Yeah. It's, it's performed live. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's, we're trying to keep it as close to the real theater experience for the actors as possible. Uh, and that's kind of our goal is it's not as much catering to like a perfect performance for the audience, but catering to that need to perform in a live kind of mm -hmm. way for the actors. So that was my goal in creating this was really to create that outlet for artists more than anything awesome. else. So uh, we have Pygmalion coming up. Uh, we'll post the links to the YouTube page, the Instagram page, the Facebook page and the website. I uh, thank you, Amy, for taking the time. Uh, you are the president and artistic director. Correct. I got that right. All right. Virtual, yeah. virtual theater 2020. Yes. Um, and uh, man, it sounds like you got a, a whole season plan of some pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, we're pretty excited about it. All right. Well, thanks to Amy Knickerbocker for sitting down and speaking with us. When we come back on Heilman and Haver, we're going to sit down with Scott Breitbarth once again and ask him some quick lightning round questions and then wrap things up when we come back on Heilman and Haver. And welcome back to Heilman and Haver. And thank you again to our guest, Scott Breitbarth, and also to our guest, Amy Knickerbocker. And thank you to you, Greg, for this delicious cocktail, which did not last long. If you'd like to know the, uh, the secret ingredients to the Nutcracker, it's going to be in the show notes. And uh, I guarantee you, you're going to enjoy it all season long. So we got a few fun questions for Scott now um, while we wrap up the show. And the okay. first one is, uh, what's the last thing that you do before you step out on stage, dance out on stage before the curtain goes up? Maybe rituals? Well, it might turn into drinking this. This <laughs> right? is amazing. <laughs> so good. So I think I probably started doing this when I was 17 years old. I'm, a, I'm actually a bit of a wrestling fan. I'm not going to lie. I, sometimes I deny it. Sometimes I go full in. But I think... Um, Right around summer 2010, I started doing the Brock Lesnar hop around, getting myself all warmed up, get all my jitters out. Um, and usually I'll just be watching everything from offstage, and there I go. <laughs> <laughs>
Are there different things, uh, uh, specific things, is that if, as, as the dancer versus if you're just going out and, and performing? Or is it just kind of the same routine regardless, just kind of to get pumped up? Yeah, I mean, like, you get, you get the blood going and you just, you're, you, have, you have to get all the jitters out. I think, especially for me, I'm usually a very shy person. Um, my, <laughs> my students wouldn't believe that. Um, but I think that once you just have to accept the fact that you were going out there, you get the blood going, got your brains going. It just does something to relax you. I mean, sometimes I would stretch, but I think there's just nothing as simple as just being like, you know what, going out on stage is an athletic event anyway. You, you might as well get your body to match what your heart's doing. <laughs> All right, awesome. So yeah. if you could work with one person, alive or dead, who would you like to work with? Oh, no. Oh, See, this, this guy's so talented. He does so many things, acting, choreographing dancing, producing, directing. He There's just, a lot of people. He should just clone uh, himself. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm sure he wishes he could be in six or eight places at a time. <laughs> look at this. Look I at the sweat on this guy's brow. Oh, man, if I, I had, I had to, it has to be a good one. Maybe I'll, I'll say Barbara Steinwick. You could never go wrong with Barbara Steinwick. I, I'm so disappointed that we never got to see the top AFI 100 people work together. You know, have Humphrey Bogart, Barbara Steinwick, and Alfred Hitchcock make a movie. That would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's so versatile. If if any of my students are listening to this and you need to watch a Barbara Steinwick movie, um, I recommend Double Indemnity. If you're in the Christmas mood, you should watch Christmas in Connecticut. And anything you find along the way, that woman is amazing. They're talented. So if someone is going to make a film of your life, <laughs> <laughs> see where I'm going with this one. Yes. Who would you like to play you? And follow-up question to that. Yes. Who do you think would be cast? Mm, okay. Um... I would like to say, because, you know, we talked earlier about different people being able to do different physical things off the show, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not exactly the dancer body type. I'm kind of stocky. I have the long arms. I'm a bit bigger. Um, I would love to see Jonah Hill give it a shot. Ah. See Jonah Hill put on some tap shoes and do something. You know, maybe we can get uh, James Corden to go along for the ride, too. (laughs) I'll see. Um, And then who would I think that they probably cast? Dang. Who do you get compared to? Who do I get compared to? Um, I usually get compared to a balding Orson Welles. Um, there are worse things. There are worse there things. There are worse Especially things. if you're a director. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have, I actually, my mom does say I kind of look like Jack Black's younger brother. Okay. Well, there's, now, there, yeah. there is an athletic dude. That's an amazingly <laughs> athletic guy. That, that, he fills my heart with so much hope. And, well, we'll just say Jack Black plays me 50 years from now. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. I would, I would take that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks, Scott. And thanks to Bainbridge Ballet for hosting the Highland and Haver podcast this week. It's been a nice break getting out of the Casa de Quinn studios for a week and having a change of scene. Coming up on our next episode, November 27th, we welcome Doug Fall, actor, singer, director, influencer, and creator of the Augmented Actor channel on YouTube. Until then, please join the conversation on Facebook and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. Thank you, Greg. And you can find us on iTunes, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or nine. Don't forget to join us November 27th. And until the footlights come up again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.